So we commit this time to you. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would come, that you would instruct us, and that our lives would be enriched. We thank you. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Resurrection Sunday, Easter, if you would. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, we look around in our culture and we see there's a, there's a lot of stuff there, and I'm, I'm not here to you know, grind an axe about bunnies and eggs and all that. I, you know, kids have fun and stuff. But, but truly, what is the, the heart of the meaning of this holiday that we celebrate every year? Uh, the first Sunday after uh, the, the spring equinox and all, uh, that's how it's worked out. That's why it changes every year. But what does it mean? What does the resurrection mean to us as people, what does it mean to believers? What does it mean to unbelievers? There are both sides to this. Uh, we're going to look this morning, but I want you to understand that it, it, if zooming all the way out, that if you look at the whole picture, if you want to look at the resurrection, if you take it out of what we believe, there's really not much left because the resurrection is central to Christianity. Without it, We'll see from God's word this morning in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that there's really nothing. And and so this is a critical, crucial understanding that we must have. Uh, It's not something that is played down in the scripture. It's quite the opposite. It's mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament. Uh, All of the, the apostles taught on it. They understood the importance of it. And it was central to their teaching. Every sermon, if you look at the book of Acts, the the history of the early church, every sermon in the book of Acts centers on the resurrection. As I mentioned, without it, Christianity becomes hollow. It becomes meaningless. It becomes uh, just another ism or or, or another thing. And and we know that it's not. Uh, With that, with that understanding comes the question that all of us have to ask at some point in our lives, some sooner, some later, uh, some running from that question their whole life. But what happens to me when I die? Is this life all that there is? Is is my existence on this earth for this period of time, whatever length that is, all that there is? Is, is Is there life beyond the grave? Is it possible to know the answer to this? And I would submit to you, yes, the answers are here. They are found here in God's word. Uh, Going all the way back, if you look at the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, written way back during the time of probably in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all that, the patriarchs of Israel. uh, Job, in chapter 14, he asks this question. He says, if a person dies, will they live again? And that's been a question that has resounded down through the ages. As we examine the resurrection this morning, I want to look at three specific areas, and and we will answer from God's word, not from John's opinion, (laughs) it doesn't count for anything, but we'll answer from God's word what that question is, how that question impacts us. We're going to look at the resurrection in three ways. We're going to look at it as an historic fact. Did it really happen? We're going to look at the resurrection and how it fulfills a present need. In, in, in those who belong to Christ, how does the resurrection, resurrection affect my life today? 
Uh, there is an effect on the unbelieving heart. We'll talk about that later and as we go. But the third thing is the resurrection as a future reality. Is there life after death? The question becomes resurrected to what and to where? Because, again, God's word contains the answers to those. So as we look at all three, how do we apply these? How do I apply this to my life? Uh, going first off, it, it, looking at the resurrection as a historic fact, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see the Apostle Paul, uh, as he was in Ephesus, we've been studying in Ephesians on Sunday mornings, uh, and as Paul was at Ephesus for three years, you see that in Acts chapter 19, that while he was there, word had evidently come to him that there were a lot of problems in the Corinthian church because the letter of 1 Corinthians is largely a letter of correction. And so word had come to him, and, and, and he's answering and addressing a lot of these concerns in this letter. One of the concerns was because the Corinth, the, the, the town, the city of Corinth, it was a city in southern Greece, about 50 miles to the west of Athens. Uh, and he had spent time there, planted a church there before he had come on uh, up to Ephesus and then done his third journey and all that. We'll go into there. But the point is, is that word had, comes to him while he's at, at Ephesus. And, and he writes back to address this. And one of the things is that they were questioning the resurrection because Greek thought, the Greek philosophers, uh, they believed that the body essentially was a trap for the soul. In other words, at death, they believed that the body being evil, substantially evil, that the body would cease to exist and that the soul would be freed. And, and, and so that was a popular understanding, popular philosophy in the first century when these things were written. And Paul is writing to say that's just not so. There is a physical resurrection that takes place. And so he gives a, a very extensive treatment. We're not going to go through all of it. We're going to take a few verses out of it, both near the beginning and near the end, or actually in the middle. Uh, and we're going to take a look at some things. So... As we look at this, uh, chapter, chapter, in chapter 15, verses 11 and 12, Paul says that some of the Corinthians have believed in the resurrection and some hadn't. So he's writing to clarify, to demonstrate also the critical importance of having an understanding of the resurrection. So uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, we read, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, I'm not making this up. I'm not inventing this. I'm not doing any of that. I am simply giving you what I was given. I have laughingly said that uh, for me as a pastor, I'm a divine delivery boy. That's pretty much it. I, when I'm teaching, I'm not I, I, I try to steer away from giving you my opinions, and I usually speak that it's an opinion when I do. But truly, what it is, is, is giving that which is already there. So he's repeating this. He essentially giving the, is essentially giving them the message that he had already received from Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Uh, he says, Christ died for your sins. In, in 1 Corinthians 2, we see that when Paul, he opens up in, in chapter 2, it's a beautiful thing that he says there. He says, listen, brothers, when I first came to you, I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. And I determined to know nothing else among you except for Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. Very important. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to major in the majors here. I'm not going to get off in the weeds on these minor deals and get, you know, because people, and <laughs> for millennia, people want to get tangled up in minor doctrinal differences. I, I just resist that, folks. Uh, we need to stay strong in the major doctrines of Christianity. We need to know what they are, and then we need to be strong in those and to defend those. But I'm not going to defend minor doctrinal issues with people. They're entitled to have their own opinion about this or that. If it's not a doctrine that is pertinent to salvation, that's, that has to do with the person and the work of Jesus, because if you change those, then you change the whole message. So if it's not a doctrine that has to do with that, I don't, I don't really want to take issue. I don't want to get tangled up again in arguments, fruitless arguments. Paul talks about that in one of his letters. He said, don't, don't get caught up in fruitless arguments. However, the resurrection is a little different deal here because it is a major doctrine. It's a major understanding for us. As I mentioned, if it's, it, it is so major that without it, Christianity falls apart. So that is something that uh, that we need to take to heart, we need to understand it, and we need to defend it when necessary. He says in verse 4 that when he that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Uh, when he talks about the Scriptures here, he's referring to the Old Testament. Uh, and prophetic, the prophetic voice in the Old Testament, when it comes to the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, is enormous. Uh, just a few passages, Isaiah 53, that huge chapter. I mean, you read that, realize it's 700 years before Christ. And it talks about his life and his work, who he was and, and, and is, and what he did. Psalm 22, that great messianic, messianic psalm. Psalm 16, Daniel 12, Isaiah 26, the list just goes on. Not time to go to every one of those. But when he says, according to the scriptures here, that was Paul's habit. He would show up in a town in the Roman Empire, and the first thing he would do is march into the synagogue and begin to reason from the scriptures. Folks, that's all we've got, and it's enough. I'm not going to reason from my opinions. I'm not going to reason from some subjective thing. I'm going to reason from the, the solid rock of God's word, because there's power there. It's by his spirit through his word. And as we, as we expound God's word to others, as we study it for ourselves, the Holy Spirit is in it. And God does speak to our hearts. He does illuminate himself to us and reveal himself to us through it. So looking at the resurrection, Jesus prophesied of his own resurrection. In John chapter 2, he said, he, he was talking to the religious leaders and he said, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it back up. And it said that they were scratching their heads and trying to figure out what he meant. And they thought he was talking about Herod's temple, which had taken 46 years to that point. It would take a few more years uh, to build. And they said, well, how can he do that? It took 46 years to build this temple. Not understanding, he was talking about the temple of his body. Matthew chapter 16, that, that great, wonderful passage where there's Jesus up at Caesarea Philippi, this big cultic center with all of these pagan temples around and talking to his men, asking Peter that famous thing that he said, you know, who do men say that I am? Who, Peter, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Love that passage. <laughs> I could rabbit trail on that real easily. But the point is, is that while he's there, there's a shift in his ministry. And he begins at that time. He says that he begins to tell his people that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the religious leaders 
and be crucified and raised on the third day. He says that in Matthew 16, the first time, the second time in Matthew 17, and then in Matthew 20, he predicts his own death and resurrection. Why? So that when it came about, it says that they didn't understand the things that he was saying then, but after he had been glorified, after he had been crucified, raised from the dead, and then had ascended to the Father, that these things just began to understand, they they got understanding, especially after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given, because the Spirit was the one that guided them into all truth. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's a major part. Verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 15 here, And then he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then by the twelve, probably in the upper room after the resurrection. Uh, verse 6, After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. Uh, but some have fallen asleep. Now, sleep, if you uh, read your New Testament, you'll see that term from time to time. It is a euphemism. It, it's, it's a term for physical death. And it was it was what the term that's used if somebody died is because because of the resurrection, they didn't assign to him death. They assigned it as sleep. And that was how they looked at it. It's very much the same way as we look at death in, in that there will be a resurrection. Uh, and so he uses that term. Remember, though, when he says some have fallen asleep, but most remain or part or the greater part remain to the present. This is about 20 years after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. that He's writing to this church uh, in Corinth. Verse 7, and after that he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. When uh, he revealed himself to the men there uh, in the upper room and then beyond. And then we see out in the book of Acts where just prior to him ascending into heaven, he's, he's there with his men and having interaction with them physically resurrected. Very important. We understand the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Didn't resurrect as a spook, as a ghost. He resurrected with a body. He ate. He was touchable. He was definitely resurrected as a person with a glorified body, but a physical body nonetheless. Very important. Again, Verse 8, and then last of all, he was seen by me, the Apostle Paul here, as one, as by one born out of due time. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, we read this. Paul, the same guy that's writing this, he says, For I neither received it, the gospel, from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Paul talks about his one being born out of due time, he wasn't in the original bunch. He wrote more than anybody else in the New Testament because he had a powerful revelation of Christ when he was on his road on the road to Damascus on his horse got knocked off blinded by the light and and Jesus spoke to him there saying Saul Saul that was his name prior to his conversion why do you persecute me and, and so on I mean that was the beginning for him of this extremely radical life transforming experience as he came to Christ fully and then would be used in in extremely powerful ways. So he didn't come initially with the initial 12, but he was uh, taught by Christ himself. There's more places where he defends his apostleship, and I'm not going to go into that this morning. But that's the biblical record of, of the historicity, if you will, or the historic relevance, the historic truth of the resurrection. A lot of people witness it. 
A lot of people talked about it. It was written down for our instruction, we're told, in the Bible, and that it comes to us intact. These truths are valid. They're enforceable truths. They are truths that are born of centuries and centuries, not of being watered down or changed, but of being reinforced because of the way that the New Testament comes to us. Fascinating how it does through literally thousands of fragments of ancient manuscripts that validate the authenticity and the accuracy of what we read in our Bibles this morning. That's great news because we know that we're not, this has not been It hasn't been played with. God prevented that from happening the way that he ensured its transmission to us. Bank on that, guys. Bank on that, because this is truly the word of God. So as we look at that, when we look at at the fact that, that this is a historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact, that's the biblical record. There's also a a bit of secular history. I'm not going to go into it a lot, but... There's a guy by the name of Flavius Josephus, and he was a secular Jewish historian in the first century. He wasn't a Christian, but he wrote down, he wrote books. One of his books was called The Antiquities of the Jews. He wrote it about 90 AD. Uh, And this is a quote from The Antiquities of the Jews. Josephus says, he was the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, again, he's Jewish, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, that's what he called them, uh, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. In other words, Christianity exploded over the known world with the resurrection. And and I mean, it was something that it wasn't just because Jesus was martyred. It was the nature of the way that the government dealt with the people and the Holy Spirit filling them up on Pentecost and sending them out to all over the, the known world at that time. That was part of what happened because of the resurrection. Yes, through the cross, our sins are forgiven. We'll talk about that as we go. So the res- the resurrection, essentially, it's a it's an historic fact. I I have no problem with that. I don't look at it in other any other way. I don't doubt it. And the reason that that I go into that this morning is, is why is that important? It's because we want to have an informed faith. Yes. We are people who are called to exercise faith in coming to and in entering into a relationship with Christ because it's believing in that which we can't see. Talked about that a lot. And yet we want to have an informed faith. These are things that are knowable. And so as we look at this, the second thing is the the resurrection fulfills a present need. All right. In Romans chapter six, we're going to look at some things there. The Apostle Paul, again, same guy writing, just writing uh, to uh, a letter to the people of the church at Rome now. In chapter 6, he says, uh, in verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us, referring to Christians, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? So now he's applying it to the church, to the people of God. He says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
there is a present need that is fulfilled in the resurrection in putting my faith in Christ, trusting that he rose from the dead to give me power. That's, he writes this in the present tense. When he's talking about, he's talking about walking. It's the manner of conduct in one's life. That's how it applies to us. So the question is, is what does this newness of life look like? And how does the resurrection fulfill my present need? A couple of things here. First is the resurrection fulfills a vertical need between me and God. Uh, the Romans 4 context here, it, we're going to go into Romans 4. Excuse me, I got ahead of myself. In Romans chapter 4, Abraham, we're told, Paul the Apostle, he's talking about Abraham, the, the father of the nation of Israel, that he believed God all the way back in Genesis, that he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. All right, so Abraham was declared righteous because he believed God. We see there in, in Genesis chapter, I think it's 21, where he has his son Isaac up on the altar and he gets the wood and he lays the wood down and he draws the knife and and, and the, the angel of the Lord says, stop, Abraham, don't take your son's life. I wanted the obedience rather than the sacrifice. Abraham believed God. He trusted that God somehow was going to work this out. Somehow he would spare his son's life, even if what it meant was he would be resurrected. So Abraham looks at resurrection all the way back at that time. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 4, in verses 23 to 25, he says, but the words it, is, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. By faith, righteousness was accounted to Abraham. He's saying it wasn't for just him, but for our, ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Interesting. Now, we're getting into a kind of a heavy doctrinal area here, folks, but it's really important that we understand what justification is. Uh, yeah, many say it's, 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 it, you could look at it as just as if I'd never sinned, and that's true, but we're going to go a little further than that in looking at the text here. So it says here that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he died for our sins and was raised for our justification. The resurrection purchased our justification. Uh, if you ask most Christians about justification, they'll go straight to the cross of Jesus and talk about him paying the price for our sins. And that's absolutely true. I mean, we're certainly not going to downplay that ever. Uh, that's true. But justification, is, it's, if it simply means an absence of guilt, if, if that's all it is, then we have a blank slate and have the rest of, have, we have to spend the rest of our lives worrying about messing that up. I don't want, you know, I don't want to live under guilt. It's like we know that in the old covenant that if somebody sinned, that they had, they sacrificed and did all that. And if they sinned, they, they got to go back the next day and do the same thing. So what is it that, that ensures that my justification is such that I don't have to worry about now that I've got a blank slate? And I don't have to stress out about if I sin again. It doesn't mean that I want to live a life of abject sin. That's ridiculous. It's not part of it. But what it does mean is Paul tells us here, he tells us the contrary. He was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. And what it means is that when Jesus rose again, that he was declared to be righteous, not just lacking sin, but embodying holiness. It's, it's as though... 
when my sins are forgiven, I, I'm brought up even with the line. I, God doesn't see me in my sins. But he goes beyond that when he justifies me he, and he sanctifies me. He declares me righteous. That's what justification means. I have been declared righteous and holy. So it's coming way above the line. It's not just satisfying the need for my sins to be forgiven. He elevates me far higher. So the credit of Jesus, this is another way to look at it. The credit of Jesus's perfection infinitely outweigh the debt of our sin. And now the Christian is counted as righteous, justified in God's sight by faith. That's why Paul is talking about Abraham being justified by faith, but not just Abraham. That flows to you and I. It's all part of the result of the resurrection. Uh, and not only is it just as if I'd never sinned, but truly it's just as if I had already lived a holy life. That's how God sees me. That's how God sees you. If you belong to him, then he sees that as already being done. You don't have to worry about, gee, now that I have this clean slate, I'm going to get it all marred up because I had an impure thought or because I spoke poorly or I did something wrong. Past, present, and future, it's been covered, it's been cleansed, it's been dealt with. And yes, our part, he says that if we confess our sins, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness? No, all unrighteousness, that we maintain a standing with him, not based on my performance, but based on his. Again, the gospel, the word gospel means good news, and that is great news. I can't get there from here in my own power, in my own work, in my own stuff. I am utterly reliant upon the grace of God and upon his mercy and upon the fact that he did the work that I couldn't do. So newness of life is, it's truly, it's a new life. By faith, I exercise faith that Jesus finished the work And as a result, I'm declared sinless, righteous, and holy. That is the way that God sees me. That's the way that God sees you if you've given your life to Christ. It's just wonderful the way he set this up. And another thing about that is, I don't know if you've ever known anybody that Perhaps they were like a party animal or they were just, you know, they were even a good upstanding citizen or or whatever. And and they have an encounter with Christ. And then you come to see them like some months later or some time later. And you realize there is an absolutely profound difference in that person. I, I remember up until 1983 uh, when... The Lord got a hold of me. I mean, I was just living for the world. I wasn't a necessarily a bad guy. I had done some bad things. I'm not going to say that I was innocent of everything, but I just remember that it, from that point forward, it was like everything just got turned upside down and reoriented in my heart and in my mind. And I began to live for Christ. And you spent a period of time living away from him, which was horrible. There's a profound difference that comes. If you're wrestling this morning, if you're living in these circumstances with this pandemic and all of the stuff that's going on being shut in now for weeks and and you're frustrated or you're fearful or you're going through it, I want to encourage you, my friend, there is peace. There is genuine, true peace. And it's not a peace that we 
can obtain because we can control our circumstances because we know really well that we can't. If anything's come out of this for me, I see how fragile that which we put our trust in is, with exception to one thing, actually one person, and that's Jesus himself. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can bank on that. So this is how we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We have been justified. We have been sanctified. We have been declared sinless, righteous, holy. The other need that that is met presently is our horizontal need. It's about how we walk. Uh, I want to look again and, and purposely going to different writings of Paul, and we'll make a departure towards the end of the message this morning, uh, because Scripture validates Scripture, and I'm moving through a lot of Scriptures this morning. Uh, don't try to keep up. You can always get this uh, you know, on a recording you know, with, on our YouTube or Facebook or the podcast, or whatever, and, and come back and review. But I'm moving through this quickly because God's Word has so much to say. I'm try- I, I spent a lot of time paring this down. This is not the original list that I had. Excuse me, that I had. So in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing a letter to another church. It's a church at Philippi, another province in, in um, actually it was an area called Mesopotamia, which is uh, sort of southern Asia and, and in that area. Uh, he's writing a letter there. And um, in this letter, he's talking about his former manner of life as a Jew, because he was... If, you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul. He was, he says in Philippians 3 here, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was taught by Gamaliel himself, the head, the master teacher in Israel. I was taught by him. Uh, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a very important tribe. Uh, as to the law, I was found blameless. And he goes through a whole pedigree here. We're not going to cover that. We're going to break into uh, the middle of his discussion about all of that. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 3 and look at his life that he is talking about. He's drawing a huge contrast about his life before Christ and his life after. And in verse 7, we read this, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I love that personal pronoun there, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. That's how we are accounted righteous. As he, we just read in Romans, and we look here in Philippians, he's essentially reinforcing the same thing, but he goes on and he talks about the result of all of that. Verse 10 in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So the question becomes, how do I access this resurrection power? Simply, it's free. By faith, you come to him and you let the weight of your life down on Jesus, on the finished work of the cross and the power of the resurrection, the power to live and be yours. The power of the resurrection is what happens when somebody is filled 
baptized even with the Holy Spirit. That's where the power comes from. The Holy Spirit brings the power to live, the power to obey, the power to understand this. The world, to the world, the things of God are foolishness. But the Apostle Paul's very clear here that if you have understanding of these things, it's because of the power of the resurrection at work in your life. If you don't know the Lord this morning, I want to encourage you, my friend, if you've never made a decision for Christ, don't be tossed around by this world. Don't be tossed around by all the stuff that you see. Don't be tossed around by endless news clips of bad news. I'm not saying to ignore it. We're not going to be, you know, put our head in the sand over these things. But if that's where your life is centered, you're going to be tossed around. Give your life to Christ. It's a simple prayer, something like, I know I've lived my life away from you. And Jesus, I want you to be Lord in my life. I don't want to just say the words. I want that to have meaning. I want I want I want you to know I'm turning from the old life and, and Jesus, I'm embracing you. Uh, as I mentioned, letting the weight and I use that term intentionally because it, it's more than just this empty, hollow faith thing. For many people, faith is their faith is in their faith. It's not the object of their faith is all important. The object of your faith is all important. Is it the Jesus of the Bible? Is it the one who went to the cross, died for your sins, rose to give you power to live? That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the one that I beckon you. I urge you, don't let your life go on without knowing him. Uh, you know, you're welcome. You, you can go to our website. We have a place where you can fill out a, a deal to, to write. I will get your email and I will personally respond. But I want to encourage you, my friend, give your life to Christ. If you don't know him, turn from the old life, repent and believe. Those two go hand in hand. We're going to talk about that in a minute. If you're a Christian who's struggling this morning, Perhaps there are circumstances that are coming to bear in your life that you weren't expecting. I mean, that that's happening a lot out there. And, and that it's not unique right now doesn't mean it's not unique to you. It doesn't mean that you don't feel the weight of those circumstances. It doesn't mean that you don't perhaps uh, waver in your faith and wonder, Lord, how are you going to work all of this out? What? How is this going to go? If you're struggling and perhaps you're thinking that the government has got some agenda and you're not comfortable with that, and I'm not going to weigh in on that. What I am going to say that there are lots of ways that people struggle. struggle. Come to the rest in the knowledge that the Lord has this and that what he calls upon his people to do is to follow him, not to follow the world and not to follow all the stuff that's out there. Uh, there's so much unrest out there, folks. And there's simplicity in knowing that our lives are hidden in Him. So if you're a believer this morning, if you know Him this morning and you're struggling, recommit. Just tell Him afresh how much you love Him. Acknowledge that He rose from the dead to give you power, and He will. In Romans 10.9 here, again in Romans, looking at how do I access this resurrection power, uh, the apostle says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So 
It's that simple. It's, it's repent and believe. It's confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's it. That's the transaction. It's a gift. You can live a life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit and shaped by his love. You don't have to live in, in a crazy world that everybody's just trying to get theirs. You can live a life that has peace, that has meaning, that has depth, even in crazy times, by allowing him to work in your heart and to influence you as being the one that he wants our devotion. He wants our lives. He, the Bible says, you know, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, and I'm glad. In Ezekiel chapter 36, another byproduct of walking in this resurrection power that we're talking about, uh, Ezekiel prophetically says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Part of what the Lord's work is in us as we draw close to him, the Bible says he'll draw close to us. So in examining the resurrection of Christ, we've looked at the fact that it's, it's an historic fact, that it's a done deal. It's something that you can trust. We look at how the resurrection of Christ fulfills a current need, both vertically in, in the fact that it opens the door for a relationship with God. That, that as a cleansed vessel now, that the Holy Spirit can come in and give me power. He fulfills a present need vertically and horizontally because now I don't walk by myself through this world. I walk informed. I have access to God. I have the ability to discern these things through spiritual eyes. First Corinthians chapter 2 is a marvelous passage on that uh, where, where Paul talks about, again, he, he's talking to this church and he's saying, look, if you have the Holy Spirit inside, you appraise all things. You see the temporal and you see the spiritual. You interpret the temporal through the spiritual. Your worldview will be that that's, which is centered in Christ. If you are just in the world, number one, the things of God are foolish to you. Maybe you're banking on your own ability to create wealth. Maybe you're banking on, yeah, there's just a whole myriad of things that we want to put our faith in. And that this kind of thing doesn't make any sense. If that's you, I would encourage you. Think again. We're talking about the one that created you, that upholds your life. Every breath in his hand. And, and and there will be a time where you bow the knee. We're in Ephesians right now. He says, uh, at the name of Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those who have rejected him will be forced to take a knee. Those who love him will voluntarily take a knee and, 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 and rejoice in his coming. So, we want to look now and wrap up with the resurrection being a future reality for the people of God. It, actually, it's a future reality for all of us. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that. As I mentioned, some of the Corinthians were doubting the resurrection. And, and Paul addresses them here uh, in, in verses 16 to 19 of chapter 15 in First in Corinthians. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. 
and you're still in your sins. In other words, Christianity has no effect. There's nothing. Uh, it's it, it's invalid. Verse 18, Then also those have fall, who have fallen asleep, died in Christ, have perished. There's no hope. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So if the resurrection doesn't take place, Paul is saying, there's nothing there. There's, there's no hope for eternity. There's no hope in this life. It's, it's futile. It's empty. It's meaningless. But we know that the resurrection did take place. We believe that. If the resurrection didn't happen, everything falls apart. And yet, since it did happen, we know and we can bank on the fact that God is in control and our lives are in his hands. So through his, his resurrection, my life can be transformed in the present. How can I really know what happens to me, though, when I die? And that's the last part here as we look at a future reality. There's a hint from the Old Testament here. I want to go into a story in Numbers chapter 21, back in the backwaters of the Old Testament. Uh, and it's a story where Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt with the Exodus and all of that. And, and this is part of their 40-year wanderings. They're nearing the end of that 40 years. Most of the generation that left Egypt has passed away. And a lot of this new generation is, is coming up now. And, and so in Numbers 20, we see that they're wandering and they need to cross over through a land uh, called Edom to get to the place where they would stage to go into the promised land. Edom was the, the land that was from Esau, Abraham's, or I'm sorry, Jacob's other son, um, <laughs> Isaac's other son, uh, Jacob's brother. I've got my patriarchs mixed, mixed up there. Uh, so Edom, his descendants, Esau's descendants, settled the land of Edom. And so when Moses came through the wilderness to cross over to go up to the, 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 the eastern bank of the Jordan River, he needed to go through this land. Edom said no and put a block. And they said, and it, it, Moses even appealed to them and they said no. And if you try, we will attack you. So it was kind of a, it was a firm no. Uh, so the people are discouraged. And that's when we see here as we come into chapter 21. And in verse 4 through 9, we're going to look at here uh, this morning, it says that Moses was there. This is a story of Moses and the fiery serpents. It says, and they, in verse 4, and they, Israel, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. They were bummed because if they could have gone through Edom, it was a direct route and it was not a very long journey to go where they needed to be. Having to go around meant backtracking, going the opposite direction, and it meant a huge investment of time for the people. And, and they were bummed by it. There was an obstacle. They didn't need to have Edomites against them, but since that was the case, they had to go around. So it says in verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of the Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. There was food and there was water and the worthless bread that he's referring to, that they're referring to here is the manna that God miraculously supplied to them every day, twice on twice as much on Friday because of the Sabbath. And, and they're essentially complaining about God's provision for them. 
God didn't, he didn't take too kindly to that. In verse 6, it says, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So when he talks about fiery serpents here, he's talking about not, they weren't like flaming snakes, but their bites would have been like fire. I don't know if you've ever been bitten by something venomous. I have, not a venomous snake, but uh, one time I, I'm not going to go there. But I mean, it's like fire. It, it is a, it's a hot, nasty, painful experience. So the people here, and you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with resurrection, Pastor John? Stick with me and we'll get there. They, the snakes came out, they bit the people, and it says that the people died. Verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Note that. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. There's Moses, the great intercessor, always stepping in and praying on behalf of the people to God, and representing God to the people and the people to God, the Old Testament priesthood or the Old Testament uh, mediator that he was. We know that Christ is our mediator, one mediator that we have between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I love that in the New Testament. So here's Moses interceding, praying for the people. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that when that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. This is odd. I, I remember the first time years ago when I read this, I thought, that is just so odd that why would he do that rather than the people said, hey, we're sorry, we repent. That's what they were saying there. When it says that they said, we have sinned. They're saying, Maybe we got this wrong. We shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have complained. We shouldn't have come against you, Moses, and God, and all of that, because now God's judging us. And why didn't God just say, okay, I forgive you. It's done. And the snakes went away, and the people lived. He was making a point here. He was providing for them a point of contact for the release of their faith. It's always by faith, folks. It's always by faith. He was letting them know, look, If you look at the serpent, you're going to live. We're going to get to that here. It says in verse 9, So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was if the serpent had bitten anyone that when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. This is essentially, it's repent and believe. It's the same thing that we see in the New Testament. Turn from the old way, the old way of looking at it, the old way of doing it, the, the old way of complaining about it, whatever it is, and embrace my way. That's the point of this. He's saying, change your mind, trust me, and be saved. So the question becomes, how does a story from 3,500 years ago about some snakes apply to me? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So how does that connect with when I die? There's a story in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 contains the most famous verse in all of God's word. Uh, and we're going to look at that, but I want to go to the verses that are sort of nestled around it this morning, and I want to look at this through the lens of these snakes, of what happened back there uh, with the, the children of Israel going through the wilderness when they sinned, and God sent the fiery snakes, they bit the people, and the only way that the people could live is if they looked to the pole. John chapter 3, uh, we're looking at This is a story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a, he was a, he was a big dude. 
in Israel in Jesus' day. He comes to him by night. Uh, can only speculate. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus or, uh, you know, he wanted the freedom to have open conversation with him without other people listening. You know, there's, there's a number of reasons why he may have done that. We'll find out perhaps sometime, but, uh, he does come to it at night and he has this dialogue with Jesus and Jesus tells him, he says, look, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You, you were born, uh, and Nicodemus says, what do you mean born again? Born from above is literally what that means. He says, you need to be born again. You need to be born again of the Spirit. Nicodemus is trying to figure it out. He's scratching his head saying, do I, so do I somehow go back into my mother's womb and, and start over? What do you mean by this? And he's scratching his head. He's trying to figure it out. He's reaching. He's trying to understand because all Nicodemus has known is a physical kingdom. All he has known is Judaism all his life. And Jesus says, look, I'm ushering in a kingdom, but it's not a kingdom that you see. It's a kingdom you experience. And so as he's talking to him about that, he's talking to him about being born again of the Spirit, of the Spirit of God. And as Nicodemus struggles with this in, in John chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus says, if I had told you earthly things and you didn't believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So Jesus is about to give him an earthly example of a spiritual truth. And that's what he's, so often that's what Jesus did. He he would give a spirit, an earthly story. A lot of times in the parables, it would be a story he would tell. This is actually, he recounts a, a real event in Israel's history as he's explaining these things to Nicodemus. And then Jesus says here in John three fourteen, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You seeing the parallels? Now he gives the heavenly truth, verse 16. And we all know this verse, at least uh, most of us anyway. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he gives a physical example in the snakes back there in Israel's history that the people had sinned, they were dying. They were being bitten by the snakes and dying. He says, look, if you want to live, you have to look to the pole and you'll live. And Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You want to live forever? You got to look to the pole. But it's not a snake. It's Jesus. Now, we could, I could talk about the symbolism that with the snake being symbolic of sin and sin being what does kill us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us, folks, are under that curse. He goes on here. He says that he didn't send his world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who believes in, in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. The people that in in Moses' day, there with the snakes, they were condemned. There was no hope 
other than looking to the pole. That's the same as the spiritual truth that Jesus is driving home here. If you want to live, you've got to look. It's not all roads lead to God. It's not, oh, well, you have your God and I have my God. Yeah, you can think that, but I'll guarantee you, folks, all of those are lowercase g gods. The true God has made provision for us to come into his presence, to come into relationship with him and to not just have a life that is meaningful, purposeful, and and with the power of God in it for now, for time, but for eternity. So we see that he says here that he who doesn't believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, just like the snakes, just like that. So three things here. The resurrection is an historic fact, The resurrection fulfills, secondly, a present need. And the resurrection is a future reality. And I'll tell you what, folks, we all have a future. It's either going to be decided for us or we're going to choose. In John chapter 5, Jesus says this. He says, For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, in the grave, shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So the resurrection will happen for every soul. But it's a matter of if you have done business with him on the basis of the cross, has he paid for your sins? If he has, then you're resurrected to life. That's what the good is. The only good thing that we can do in our own selves is to choose Christ. The rest... That doesn't mean that we don't do good, that we don't live good lives, that we don't live lives that are above the cut. But that is a response to the grace that I've been shown. My life, any obedience in my life is a response to the love that he's poured out on me. Anything that I do that counts for the kingdom of God is because his Holy Spirit is working and moving within me and producing that fruit because I know John when that's not the case. The point, my friend, is if you belong to him this morning, rejoice. The resurrection, the power of the resurrection is available to you, and you can walk in it. Perhaps you are, and if that's the case, praise God. If you're struggling this morning, avail yourself of the power that he brings. If you don't belong to Christ this morning, you need to, you need to deal with that. And I'll tell you what, the change very often is nothing short of miraculous because it is a complete miracle when Jesus comes in and sets up housekeeping in your heart. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he comes in and begins to shift things inside. And pretty soon the old ways don't fit anymore. Pretty soon the things that, pretty soon our language gets cleaned up a bunch for some of us. Pretty soon the things that, that, that were important to me are, are just not that important anymore. There's a miraculous transaction available. It comes through the death of Jesus on that cross and the resurrection from the dead. As I mentioned, every knee will bow. I can't wait for that day because I know to whom I belong. I would ask you to ask yourself that question. This pandemic 
I think about it sometimes, guys. I I, I don't know the answers to it. I, I don't I, I don't understand, you know, the statistics a lot of the time. I mean, yeah, I see the news clips and all of that. But one of the things I think about is, as a Christian, what is my response to it? Part of why I am, am so strongly sharing the gospel and, in, and encouraging, urging people to be right with God in this is I've thought a lot about the story about Moses and the snakes in the wilderness. Think about it from the standpoint of, had you been there? And, and yeah, you had sinned against God. You had complained and whined and murmured and done all this stuff. And, and I mean, that's kind of how we are as people outside of Christ. And, and you got bitten by that snake. And you realize that the only way out, the only way that you would escape this horrible plague, uh, this venomous thing that was going on that was killing so many people, was to look to the pole. The first thing that I would want to do would be to go to my family and say, you've got to look at the pole. And, you know, there's, you know... Uncle so-and-so over there, ah, I'm not going to look to no pole. That's just ridiculous religious stuff. Hey, who cares about that? And he's dying. <laughs> I mean, his leg's all swollen up from the bite. And you know when that venom hits his heart, he's done. And, and I think about in those days, there would have been an urgency of making sure that people understood there is a remedy. There is hope. We don't have to die. I look and I think about how fearful people are in this in this crazy coronavirus thing and 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 how they're they're trying to put their hope in so many different things that I mentioned last week that the whole toilet paper thing was a symptom that the trying to store up goods and all that not that that's unwise but when that's where your hope is that if that's all you've got you're woefully inadequately prepared for what happens when your life is done I, again, I think about the, the people in Israel, the, just the urgency they did have, have had of going to every person that they could and saying, look, you've got to do something about this. The provision is there. God's provision is there. There's a snake on a pole in the middle of the camp. All you got to do is look at it. That's all you got to do. It's not going to require any effort on your behalf. It's not going to require that you jump through any hoops. You, you don't have to you know, sign this paper or any of that. How much more? With Jesus Christ going to that cross, hanging on that pole and saying, whoever looks to the pole by faith, trusting in the work that I accomplished on your behalf when you were helpless. I don't care how powerful you are in this life. You are helpless before God. How much more does he offer salvation and eternity? What he says here, eternal life, everlasting life. Great news. Let's pray. Father, I just pray right now, Lord, for each person that's watching this, that you would stir our hearts. If we belong to you, Lord, that you would stir.